0: Once more today, our sermon text comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Bible says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Be, God. Join with me. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we too have come to the mountain today to hear Jesus speak to us. Lord, we know that um, as his words were very easily misunderstood in that context, and though he took uh, uh, efforts to prevent that from happening, uh, they have often been misunderstood. I pray that today, however, uh, that uh, you would bring clarity to what Jesus is teaching us in this uh, uh, all-important sermon Uh, That we might understand what it means to be his followers so that our righteousness would exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. To this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and please be seated. Last week, we began a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And in our initial sermon, what was part one of a two part introduction, I tried to lay some groundwork that I think is necessary for properly understanding Jesus' most famous sermon. In particular, last week, I made much of the fact that Jesus delivers the sermon from a mountain. Because thematically in Matthew's telling of the telling the story of Jesus as the story of Israel, we told Jesus is depicted as a new and greater Moses assembling around himself. The beginnings of what will become a new Israel to whom he also delivers God's law from a mountain. The idea is that at Sinai, Moses ascended a mountain into God's presence to receive the law, which he then delivered to the people to instruct them as to how they should live as God's newly constituted royal priesthood. From the mountain, he also received the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary to provide a model for the construction of the earthly tabernacle. In the same way, therefore, Jesus ascends a mountain to deliver a sermon that has as its focus how to properly keep the law. And in the process, he also provides a heavenly pattern to help those gathered around him know how to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, with that context in mind once more, Today we return to the Sermon on the Mount to again try to orient ourselves to the sermon to ensure that we interpret it properly in the sermons to come. As I hope to show you, the reason we're taking another week merely to introduce the Sermon on the Mount is because it has been interpreted many ways over the years. Some of which I don't believe are helpful and, and, and some it, that at times can be downright harmful. In fact, for reasons that we'll see, I believe the Sermon on the Mount, as popular as it is, is often misunderstood. As a result, I'm going to ask you to bear with me if I spend as much time today talking uh, about what the sermon doesn't teach. As opposed to what it does teach. Though I I would prefer not to proceed this way. For reasons that will become clear as we progress. I think you'll see why it's necessary. To clear away some misunderstandings. Before we work our way through. The Sermon on the Mount. Okay. So. With that in mind. That's what I want to do today. I want to clear away some confusion so we can learn what Jesus actually intends to teach us in this sermon in the weeks that follow, okay? So consider this a little demolition work before we lay a a laying of a foundation upon which we can build, okay? As I mentioned regarding the thematic elements of Matthew's gospel, The fact Jesus' life to this point has recapitulated events in Israel's history surrounding the Exodus naturally leads us to make a connection with Moses delivering the law at Mount Sinai. Therefore, not surprisingly, the connection with Moses becomes clear near the outset when Jesus declares that he has come, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What follows thereafter lends some support to that declaration in that Jesus next takes up several ethical issues derived from the law and provides rulings on them from his perspective. As we'll see as we advance, topics include things like murder, divorce, false oaths, vengeance, and so on. In fact, a a, a close examination shows that the list of topics Jesus addresses is derived from the second table of the law, meaning the, the second half of the commandments that focus on how to love our neighbors. However, on the surface, many of Jesus' comments in the sermon appear to take issue with the commandments, thus leading a lot of people over the years to believe that Jesus is, in fact, doing away with the law or he is at least altering what it means to keep it. For that reason, Many have concluded over the years that Jesus replaces Moses' commandments with his own. Okay, this is how we did it back in Old Testament times. Here's how we're going to do it now. What I want us to see today, though, is that this is a clear misunderstanding of Jesus' purpose in the Sermon on the Mount, which can be seen from his opening marks that we used for our first reading earlier. To explain, after giving a list of Beatitudes and before addressing various topics from the law, Jesus states plainly, he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When we come to that passage, we'll talk more about what that means. But for the moment, It seems clear that Jesus' opening remarks are intended to counter the mistaken notion that he is taking issue with the law. In fact, I believe Jesus anticipates that his words that follow may be misconstrued. And so to ensure they're not, he declares at the outset his intention is not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Again, he's going to say some things that might lead people to that. But that's why he's saying, look, don't misunderstand. I'm not coming to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Okay? To add further support, Jesus says the smallest strokes of the law, be like dotting the I's crossing our T's, smallest strokes of the Hebrew alphabet will not pass away until all is accomplished. Then if that isn't enough, he says that status in the kingdom of heaven is determined, excuse me, is determined by one's attitude toward the least of these commandments. Finally, Jesus tells his listeners that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. To my point, put all together... Jesus' opening comments are clearly intended to convey the fact that he is not an opponent of Moses. Therefore, if his comments that follow appear to be contrary to law, chances are we're misunderstanding them. That, however, is precisely what is commonly done because of the manner Jesus addresses the topic's that follow to explain beginning with chapter 5 verse 21 jesus enters excuse me he introduces a series of ethical issues with a common refrain you have heard that it was said to those of old etc etc but i say to you introduces each topic that way. You have heard it said to those of old, but I say to you. Given the fact that Jesus' words that follow allude to aspects of Old Testament law, which seem to challenge his audience's understanding of it, it would appear that Jesus is perhaps taking issue with teachings of the Old Testament in various ways that we'll talk about in just a moment. What is imperative to stress, however, is that at no time does Jesus ever say, It is written, but I say to you. At no time does he ever say, Moses said, but I say unto you. Rather, in each instance, he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus is not taking issue with what is written, but what was taught. Now, the difference may seem slight. It's actually of of supreme importance. As we're going to see when we get to that section, in each instance, Jesus isn't taking issue with the law per se, but with the pharisaical traditions and their interpretations of the law, which have as their, their effect nullification of the law. That I believe is why Jesus brings up the scribes and the Pharisees at the start, when he tells his audience that their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, what Jesus is doing, and this is one, of, there's a reason why they later want to crucify him. is like, here's what you've been taught. I'm telling you that's wrong. That's what he does throughout, and I think that this is the that, that, that this is proving can be seen by the conclusion of the sermon. When we're told that the multitudes perceived the difference between Jesus' teaching and that of the scribes. We heard at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, And so it was when Jesus then ended these things that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So to my first point. Perhaps the most pernicious misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is doing away with the law and replacing it with a new ethic. In reality, everything Jesus says is consistent with what the Old Testament properly understood actually teaches. Now, keeping that thought in mind and building on it, another argument that is sometimes made is that Jesus' teaching differs from that of the Jewish leaders because he doesn't give commandments. Rather, it's argued that Jesus speaks words of grace and mercy Not commands. I mean, think about it. Moses came down the mountain with ten commandments. Jesus gives eight beatitudes. And so the argument is that Jesus speaks words of grace and mercy, you know, words of blessing, not commands. Hence the idea is that the Old Testament provides law, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he provides grace. Problem with this view, is that Jesus' words in the sermon contain all sorts of imperatives. In other words, his teaching also, while it it proclaims blessing, it also makes demands on its hearers. What's more, Jesus' demands are no less strict than the law's. That's why, as we said a moment ago, status in his kingdom is determined by how well one keeps even the least of his commandments. Moving on to another popular misconception of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is the frequent claim that Jesus emphasizes the internal demands of the law in contrast to the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, whom it's argued only focus on the external demands of the law. In this case, it's argued we see this by how Jesus often addresses heart issues when he takes up the various topics he cites. claim is, according to this view, the scribes and Pharisees are concerned only with explicit acts of murder, murder, adultery, and, for example, the details of oaths. But Jesus takes up those issues to focus on the things that drive such behaviors, like anger, lust, and truth in the inner parts. That, it's often asserted, is the fundamental difference between the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees and the teachings of Jesus. Teachings of the scribes and Pharisees are concerned only with external actions, whereas Jesus is concerned with the internal attitude that drives such actions. This also, it's sometimes argued, explains why Jesus' teaching is different from the Old Testament. Or else it takes the teachings of the Old Testament and elevates it to include the inner dispositions of the heart. As appealing as that may sound, and despite how popular this notion is, I want to make it abundantly clear that this too is a harmful error that I think needs to die a thousand deaths. First, contrary to what we often hear today, the Old Testament always and everywhere addresses the matter of the heart. We see this clearly in the very first commandment when it declares, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your strength. We see it in Psalm 24 when the psalmist asks, Who who may ascend to the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? The answer given is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, it's not only about the things you do with your hands, but also what's in your heart. It's for this reason, David prays in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. To my point, we can multiply examples from the Old Testament show that the Mosaic Law always emphasized the attitude of the heart every bit as much as it did external actions. Building on this point, I'm just setting minds everywhere, trying to blow up everything, okay? Building on this point, in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see Jesus addresses not just attitudes, but actions. On several occasions, Jesus will command not only attitudes, but the performance of a different set of practices. Like leaving your gift at the altar and going being reconciled to your brother, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving your coat to the one who asks, blessing those who curse you, doing good to those who hate you, and so on. In all these ways and more, Jesus doesn't just say, do these things with a different attitude but do them differently. Okay? So some say Jesus is doing away with the law. Not the case. Some say Jesus is concerned with the internal attitude. Not the case. Okay? Jesus is concerned with our actions. That brings us to the last major misconception concerning Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount This one is the one that is popular in our circles. It's one I I have held to before. Given what we've just said about the many demands Jesus places on his audience, some have claimed that what Jesus does in the sermon is give an impossible ideal that can never be fulfilled. Therefore, the purpose of the sermon is to drive us to despair regarding the depths of our own sinfulness, which is the uh, it, it, to, to drive us to despair regarding the depths of our own sinfulness, so that we will throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus to receive His imputed righteousness, which is the only righteousness capable of exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. Put it differently. Again, this is popular in reform circles. The argument is the Sermon on the Mount makes impossible demands to teach us we cannot earn our salvation no matter how hard we try. Therefore, in doing so, it causes us to turn to Jesus in faith to receive his righteousness, which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Needless to say, there's a, there's a certain appeal to that position. There is, after all, there's an element of truth to it in that it's correct. We cannot earn our salvation. What's more, what really makes it appealing is that position takes a whole lot of pressure off of us. I mean, it's like, why try? Anything I do is going to be bound, is, is bound to lead to Failure. But that's what's so great. Is because Jesus kept the law for me. So now all I have to do is believe in him. And everything will work out fine. As appealing as that take on the sermon sounds. As appealing as it is to our spiritual lethargy. I do not believe that's what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I say that because. Throughout the Old Testament. God's righteousness refers to his covenant faithfulness. As it applies to us, it certainly implies an important element of faith on our part. But it is an active faith that participates in God's covenant by becoming the agents by which God manifests his saving work to the world. To put it differently, The kind of faithfulness Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, which produces the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, is the kind of covenant faithfulness Jesus displays in his own life. And this covenant faithfulness that he exhibits in his own life, he demands of his disciples as they participate in advancing the kingdom of heaven... By embodying the things he teaches them to do. To put it plainly. Throughout the sermon. Jesus doesn't merely call on his disciples to believe in him. Does he ever even do that in the sermon? Perhaps it's implied. But throughout the sermon. Jesus demands his disciples display righteousness by right living. That's why throughout he provides instruction about how to live as his disciples. That naturally entails doing more than merely ascending to the fact that Jesus is God's Messiah. Obviously it includes that, it starts there, but it also entails living for Jesus precisely because he is God's Messiah who has come to begin the restoration of all things so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is to occur by Jesus' followers paying heed to his words and living out his teaching. David Garland states it like this. The assumption is that these commands not only can be done, they must be done. The disciples' ultimate destinies depend not only on their relationship to Jesus, but also on their obedience to his words. Obedience is rewarded by inclusion in the kingdom of heaven. Disobedience will meet with final punishment. lest anyone misunderstand what I'm saying here let me close with a word of qualification to all I've just said and then we'll be finished what I want us to see is that our text presents us a familiar pattern in scripture throughout scripture God first delivers a people and then he gives them his law We've got it all backwards. The law is there. He gives it to us. Oh, I can't earn my salvation, so I'm just going to throw myself on your mercy. God first redeems us, then he gives us his law. It's what he did with Israel. He first delivered the nation from bondage in Egypt. Then he gave his law at Sinai to a people who had already been redeemed. As my redeemed people, here's how I want you to live. What's the preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, here's how you live. It's the same with our text. We must never forget the end of Matthew 4 first tells us Jesus healed people of every sort of disease, affliction, and demonic possession in the events just prior to our text. So it is to these redeemed people that Jesus now gives his law As the means by which their faith is to be exercised. Let me say that again. It is to the the people at the end of chapter 4 that he has redeemed. Jesus gives his law as the means by which their faith is to be exercised. To put it simply, obedience is obligatory for anyone who would enter the kingdom of heaven. But as is always the case, obedience is a response to the gracious activity that God has has already performed on people's behalf. That is the righteousness of faith Jesus teaches, which is the righteousness of faith that the law, first given to God's redeemed people at Sinai, always taught. The reason the law can only be kept by faith is because it's going to require faith to do the things Jesus teaches. I don't want to be reconciled to my brother who has offended me. I would prefer to nurse my grievances. Let him come to me instead of me leaving my gift at the altar, going to him. I don't want to turn the other cheek. My instinct is to strike you back. And if push comes to shove, so be it. I'll hit you back. Isn't that how the world works? You have to defend your honor. When I'm being compelled by a tyrant to go a mile, I might acquiesce because I have to, but I certainly have no desire to go a step further Much less an extra mile. And why should I give you my coat? I worked hard for it. Why don't you get one yourself? See, to my point, Jesus does, in fact, make some serious demands of his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, on the surface, it appears that if I do the things Jesus demands of me, It'll lead to nothing but deprivation and sorrow. If I don't retaliate when somebody slaps me on the cheek, won't I be constantly bruised by the world? If I go the extra mile, won't I be exhausted all the time? And if I give you my coat, what am I going to do to keep warm? Deep down in our sinful nature, that's how we think. But that's why it comes down to faith. And that's why at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus anticipates this objection and he addresses the fear head on. He knows he makes demands of his disciples which can only be fulfilled by faith. And that's why after telling us how to be children of our Father in heaven and citizens of his kingdom, Jesus tells us not to worry about the things that that, that we do but to trust our heavenly Father to care for us. If we will keep his commands, if we will do the things he commands and seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, all the things we worry about will be added to us. That is the righteousness of the law Moses always intended. And that is the righteousness of faith Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Join with me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have redeemed us. You've called us now to be your royal priesthood. Jesus has given us his law, and the demands seem great. And our own instinct is not to uh, heed them or to find ways to, uh, to get around what Jesus says. But I pray, Lord, that we would trust in you. That we would seek and endeavor to conform our lives to Jesus' words as we uh, hear Him speak to the mountain uh, from the mountain to us in the weeks that follow. Uh, that we would indeed be a city set on a hill and a light to the nations. That our heavenly Father would be glorified by our good works. To this end, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings.